playlist with Ben and Fiona. I mean, that's crazy how much the world has changed, right? I mean, you just can't plan for a thing like yeah. that. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS, and I'm joined by my co-host, SBS channel manager, Ben Nguyen. Hey, Ben. Hey, Fee. How's it going? Oh, you know, five months in, zooming, not a storm. I'm all right. How are you? Good, good. Uh, yeah, it's the new normal, just like film festivals becoming virtual, which is part of what we're yes. talking about this week on The Playlist, because Fiona, you'll be giving us a roundup of this year's curfewed Melbourne International Film Festival, Myth 68 and a half, and talking with the creators of the real life BBC drama coming soon to SBS, The Salisbury Poisonings. And we talk Indian matchmaking in What Have You Been Watching and click play on a couple of OD picks. Quite a bit. Let's get into it. Sophie, I think you've spent the last week immersed in the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yes, I have. Um, remotely. Uh, it is a digital festival this year, as are all the others, unfortunately. But um, shout out to all our friends in Melbourne who are in the perennial lockdown. Um, but, you know, I am grateful that film festivals have found a way to still occur this year. Just speaking for myself, they've been the bright highlight of my um, my winters, you know, Sydney and then Melbourne. Mm, yeah. um, so it's a testament, I guess, to the creative thinking and the quick quick moving um, that, that these festivals still been able to occur and work well. Like they're all digital platforms and touch wood, but it's been it's been quite easy to um to access the films and, and they've all played without a hitch. Having said that, <laughs> now I've jinxed myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think we can all thank the internet gods that streaming seems to be working in a reasonable capacity before this uh, once in a hundred year pandemic struck. Mm-hmm. And uh, what sort of kind of program has Melbourne brought to us this year? Well, um, it, it is quite a big program considering, you know, obviously there are fewer films around this year because fewer films were able to be finished by the time these um, festivals were all starting to plan their programs. But, you know, it's it's quite a big offering considering and with a lot of the new films that, um, you know, we're getting buzz out of Sundance, um, which was kind of, and Berlin, which were sort of the last <laughs> last festivals to really happen. Mm. There was a can, which, again, I don't want to say thanks to the pandemic, but because of the pandemic, I was able to attend in inverted commas digitally. But there was a re- very reduced program of can this year as well. But that said... Um, Sydney was very slimmed down as well. Yes, of course, Sydney was very slimmed down. It was, um, again, that was very rapidly put together as well. But uh, so Melbourne has a great mix of docs and features. And as is often the way, um, I, I just live for the docs really at these festivals because, and quite often that's, I've said in the past, um, you know, it's it's these films that really benefit from the festival experience. I'm watching with an audience and some of the docs that unfold, you know, you can really, watching it with an audience makes it that much better. Yeah, um, I agree with so. that, but you're not getting that now. <laughs> No, no, you're not. Just the audience in your household. So, yeah, there's just speaking for myself, there's been two of us watching these um, docs. So not quite the same, not exactly a full uh, capital theatre or, um, you know, a full state theatre if you're in Sydney. But, um, you know, it is what it is and uh, we're grateful to be able to see them. Anyway, I'll just run off a couple of my favourites so far of of Myth. Yeah, Um, yeah, terrific. There's a great film called Mare, which is by American director David Osit. And this one, it follows a 
an actual mayor of Ramallah, a city in Palestine. And it's this city that doesn't get a lot of um, coverage in, in representations of the Middle East, certainly. And it's a town where there, it's, how, how do I explain this, Doc? It's sort of part parks and rec, a little bit veep. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a fly on the wall walking in the shoes of this mayor in, in a town, in a city that sort of doesn't have a country because it's in, it's in Palestine and it's surrounded by, by Israel. Um, mm. And uh, the town is planning its Christmas celebration because there are, it's quite a, quite a Christian town. Yeah. And they're talking about branding, um, talking about footpaths and plumbing. But then on the fifth day of the shoot of this lengthy time embedded with, with the Mayor Musa Hadid, one occupant of the White House, Mr. Uh, Trump, has announced that he wants to move the Israeli embassy, the American embassy in Israel, and that's what kicks off a big uh, geopolitical moment in the film because of what it does to the people in Ramallah. Yeah. So it's this contrast between macro and micro of like small bureaucracy with big moments in the Middle East politics. Yeah, Trump moment. once again so, leaves his imprint. Yeah, exactly. So just a shout out as well, I've, I've had a chat to David Osit. So there's a, an interview that will be up on SBS Movies if you want to read a bit more about this film. But um, again, that's another one that would really benefit from watching with an audience because of the humour in watching conversations about footpaths, but then uh, how the bigger picture starts to, um, some of the bigger scenes that are in this documentary. I won't spoil it because I'm sure it will make its way to cinemas when... You know, mm. one hopes. It makes me um, think of a couple of documentaries involving mayoral fights, Street Fight, which uh, we did mention previously, but also Rats in the Ranks, the great Australian doco Absolutely. about the mayor of Leichhardt, um, which is certainly a favourite of mine. But um, I do have to admit when you began to explain this, I did for a moment think you were talking about a documentary about a horse. <laughs> Sure, yes. Uh, if you see it spelt, that would um, clear that up, <laughs> unless the horse's name was Mare. Um, but, yes, good point. Um, and while we're on the subject of um, local politics, there's a documentary series from Steve James, who we know from Hoop Dreams and from America to Me that you mentioned a couple of episodes back. Mm. He's got a new documentary series called A City So Real that is on if, and um, this one follows the mayoral elections for Chicago. So, yeah, this is a... Want to say four part doco series that really gets into the nuts and bolts of this mayoral campaign to replace Ram Emanuel, who um, resigned. So, yeah, it really gets into just some of the bizarre processes involved in mayoral campaigns and some really specific issues related to Chicago. It really gets in there, as, as you would expect with Steve James, um, if you're familiar with his work. It's excellent. Great. As, um, we once mentioned previously, you've never seen The Wire, but there is a season of The Wire that focuses all, all within uh, City Hall and, and on the office of the mayor. Well, look, I'm on a, I'm on a roll here. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> if it's that angle that gets me into watching um, The Wire, I know it's great. I just <laughs> haven't found the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, it's going to be this. Um, and just for something completely different, there's another doc on the Go-Go's, the famous girl band uh, yeah. from the 80s, that is excellent and it follows from the very beginning like their punk origins uh, through to the big pop hits um, and beyond and look I 
I knew the hits, <laughs> but I, I've never been a big follower of the Go-Go, so I didn't, I didn't realise they had so, quite so many albums. And this is a really warts and all documentary about them with talking heads from all the members, including some who left and some who came in to replace those who left. And um, they, don't, they don't skimp on the details. Like it gets into the drug stuff, it gets into the rivalries. So it's not just one for the fans. It goes back to their punk origins um, through to the perception of them as being sellouts when they started to make it big. So it covers sort of early days of punk up to their pop hits and also the perception of them being sellouts when they started to make bucket loads of money. But it also touches on the sexism that they encountered in the music industry. Um, I'm not breaking any news here, but, um, yeah, just the backlash against them because, you know, they were the first all-female group to have hit a number one album in their debut album. And, um, no, there's a lot of great stories in here. So I think that, yeah, that was a really excellent doc and I learnt a whole lot more than I knew about the Go-Go's. And, Fee, if you were to pick out a Go-Go's tune, what what would it be? Well, like I said, I mean, I wasn't hugely familiar with their whole catalogue. Um, so I only really knew Ellipsis Sealed and We Got The Beat. But um, yeah, probably of those two, Ellipsis Sealed, sometimes called Alex The Seal. But uh, what about you, Ben? What's your favourite? Um, yeah, Are you a yeah, big Go-Go's no, fan? I'll, I'll back you on that. And um, the documentary was called The Go-Go's. The Go-Go's, that? yep. Just straight up The Go-Go's. Look, I've done a bit of a doc focus. Um, there's another great one, um, Nine to Five, Story of a Movement, which um, I'm a big Dolly fan and you would be familiar with the movie Nine to Five and the song, of course, being a karaoke demon as you are, Ben, I'm sure you're aware of Nine to Five. Mm-hmm. But this film, this doc, is the story of the movement that was then depicted in Nine to Five, the film with um, oh. Dolly and Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, um, because like some people might think that the movement came in light of the film, but in actual fact, Jane Fonda was aware of this kind of workplace overhaul, really, that started with secretaries and was just an attempt to get recognition for the work that women were doing in offices that was unrecognised and you know, these vague job descriptions that were basically making women kind of work wives, having to do all the sort of life um, admin for their employees and, of course, the harassment that comes part and parcel with that. So it's a story of feminism in the American workplace for women. Yeah, and it's a really interesting documentary that was there as well. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. And I'll finish off with one fictional film, a a narrative film that I hope is still getting a cinema release um, because it's fantastic and it was a a special preview screening at MIFF through Palace Films, Corpus Christi. Uh, a Polish film, which the name might be familiar because it was nominated for an Oscar early in the year. Mm. Remember the Oscars <laughs> all those months ago? <laughs> um, the last good thing that happened when Parasite won. Yeah, so Corpus Christi, a Polish film, um, and the less you know about it, the better. So I'll just give really the top line um, synopsis of it. But it's kind of set, it opens in a juvenile detention centre, I suppose, um, which uh, is very religious and um, there's a religious order to it. And... Um, one of these kids is getting released and he wants to be a priest but his background, you know, prohibits that. So heads off to a new life and ends up 
faking life as a priest. So he becomes a priest without any of the ordination. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to watch him give a really good sermon, but, uh, yeah, you just are waiting for his past to catch up with him. And it's fantastic. Corpus Christi. Oh, okay. Well, there was four great picks <laughs> as part of the MIF 68 and a half virtual festival. Mm. Do you know how long that's running until, Fee? So MIF runs until the 23rd of August. All right. Well, uh, a little window there for people to hop onto those films. And if, if you do miss out, I'm sure some of them will be released in some other capacity somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. We can only hope. Um, so, Fee, uh, a couple of episodes ago we talked about The Salisbury Poisonings, which is a new four-part drama um, was a big success when it launched in the UK earlier in the year and it's coming to SBS from August 24th. And you had a chance to speak to the two creators. I did because um, what fascinated me, like I said, it's four-part drama, but it's based on real-world events that are quite recent, the Salisbury poisonings that mm. uh, happened in kind of about this time two years ago in um, in the city of Salisbury. Yeah, so in um, drama terms, it's very quick turnaround. Very quick turnaround. So I want to, yeah, I was really just seeing how it plays out and it's, you know, a really riveting drama. I was really curious, how did they write this? What was the timeline of this? Um, and also, you know, you're dealing with real people, um, actual people depicted, you know, it's their real names, it's their, it's their um, relationships and whatnot. So, yeah, I was really curious, how do you go about adapting something like this in such a tight turnaround? So, yeah, I reached out to um, the co-writers, Declan Law and Adam Patterson, who are also executive producers of the show, and they've got a journalism background, so I guess that helps mm. um, in, in the way this story is told. But, no, they, they were great. So um, let's have a listen to Declan Law and Adam Patterson. Hi there, how you doing? Hi, good, thanks. How are you? Good, very well, thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Hi, Fiona, nice to meet you. Hello, great to meet you too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking the time and congratulations. It's um, yeah, pretty special. I saw all four parts. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay, that's great. 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 Yeah. We're really glad you like it. Like, obviously, it was a kind of labour of love for quite a long time. So if someone tells us they've enjoyed it, it makes us happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah not truly. Yeah. And I mean, I don't say that to everyone, so <laughs> you don't know me, but I would. Um, an obvious point to start. I mean, how did you come to make it as a show? I mean, I, you know, it's very recent history. At what point in the timeline did, did this become a show you were considering? Um, we went down to Salisbury as early. It was 2018, September. And that was really recent. Um, like the Dawn Sturgis had only passed away a few months before. You know, the world's media had been focused on Salisbury for months and months and months. And we were asked to go down there by Dancing Ledge Productions to have a look and to see whether there was a drama there to be told. Um, Declan and I are former journalists. We were working current affairs for, you know, a decade. Uh, Declan was a reporter and myself as a producer. So we kind of went down there with our journalism hat on and thought, you know, do we, is there really a new story to tell here? Here we really weren't sure. We kind of... Um, we thought it might have been told already and we should have said to each other like we're only going to do this if we can find a new angle and bring something new and also more importantly if the people that have been affected really uh, agree to being part of this because the trauma would be so recent and so there's a lot of ethical concerns there but very quickly after we arrived we realized that um there was a completely untold story in Salisbury about a local response effort 
people, civil servants, you know, local policemen, people who literally came together with this unprecedented threat of a nerve agent on their doorstep and whose decision-making and um, saved countless lives. Um, and so when we started speaking to people like Tracy Daskovich, the director of public health, who's you know, one of the leads in the show, we realized that there was, a, not only was there a story that should be told, uh, that, that we realized that you know, the world didn't know about it at all. Um, we just couldn't believe that you know, this is a woman who would ordinarily deal with food hygiene seminars and outbreaks of nits, and she's suddenly cordoning off vast swathes of the city to prevent this invisible agent spreading. Um, so yeah, we were inspired to tell their story, but it took a long time to get everyone on board because everyone um, had suffered media fatigue and they were understandably, you know, kind of reluctant uh, um, initially to talk to us. So it took, to, as you know yourself, it takes a lot of time um, and, it, and we had to build up a lot of trust. But we had an agreement with ourselves, with the BBC, with Dancing Les, that we wouldn't take the story forward unless these principled people whose lives have been so greatly affected, unless they signed up and said, please tell our story. Because for us, that would be a ridiculous situation to represent them like so soon after these events if they didn't want to be involved. And, but thankfully, they did. One by one, they signed up. They saw that we really wanted to do justice to their story, and they all got behind the drama. And that's the only way it worked, Yeah. essentially. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so what were some of the questions you, you asked them? Um, you know, as you say, not a lot of people knew, that, <laughs> knew about the, the individuals behind this mammoth effort. effort. Um, what were some of the questions that, that you, you drew out of them? Okay, it's, it's not so much that the questions were consistent, it's that we were consistent. And by that I mean, you know, we just went back down to them time and time and time again. Um, it's the, you know, we made documentaries for years and one of the things that often frustrated us would be that you would end, land on someone's doorstep and need an answer from them, maybe not that night, but very soon, whether they're going to take part. And by take part, I mean, like, give us this really difficult testimony to, you know, put on screens all around the country. That often troubled us. Like, it's difficult because you're putting a lot of pressure on people. But with this project, we didn't have to do that. We basically said, no, the decision lies with you. You call us when you're ready. And I think, you know, that gives people a lot more confidence that you're just not there for a smash and grab job to, you know, grab testimony and run off. We're saying to them, you know, we can only make this if you go the whole journey with us, not just through interviews. But if you look at the scripts and say, eh, my character may or may not say that, um, or, you know, you've forgotten about this. And, you know, so that level of consultation, you know, not only helps them, but helps us in, in representing real people. So with factual drama, you know, we, we often say factual drama is not a game because it's not, you know, you've got a huge responsibility. Um, so, yeah, it's really, yeah, we may ask the same questions again and again, but it's more just that you're always there for them and that they understand that at any stage they can put their hand up and say, I'm not that comfortable with that. And I think when you've got that balance going on, that's when factual drama can work well, especially when you're representing something that's just happened. It may be slightly different from something that happened 30 years ago, but we're talking something that's still, for example, an active investigation. You know, it's very, very, very recent. Mm -hmm. So you need to be very conscious of those things. So you made a real effort to, to be true to their stories and be authentic and represent them authentically. Um, how did you balance that with needing to make a compelling drama as well? So, you know, did you take any artistic liberties, maybe not with their own personal stories, but how did you balance being authentic with, you know, making a, making a tight drama for television? Well, first of all, it was really important to us to stick as closely as possible to the testimony of the people in it. That, that was very, very important. And where we where we had to diverge 
uh, we've always run it by them. Um, I mean, all of the real people in it, Ross and Mo Cassidy and Sarah Bailey, Tracy Daskovic, the Sturgis family, they all saw the scripts as we went along. Um, and where things hadn't happened exactly as they had in real life, they signed off and said, that's fine if, if that's what you need to do. But we were kind of lucky in that the story was so inherently dramatic and so crazy that we didn't really have to take major artistic liberties. Um, I, I would say maybe the, the, there's, there's two things. One, the events happened over a period of nine months and we had to consolidate that into three hours. So, um, so it looks like in the series, things that are, happened in a week in real life had probably happened over the course of a month. Um, and then the other thing was, I guess, every time you choose a point of view in a drama, every time you have a protagonist, you're obviously leaving out lots of other stories that could have been told around this yeah. incident. But, but in, in terms of massive uh, artistic liberties, we were just lucky in the story we were telling that we didn't really have to do that. Yeah, the, the narratives, the narratives were there. I mean, the structure was there. You know, the, there's this kind of crazy enemy that they defeat, then rises again in a new way. They then have to defeat it again. Lots of people suffer along the way. You know, we used the analogy of Jaws quite a lot. You know, the sharks back in the water. You know, it it, yeah. it was all there dramatically. So we you know we weren't drawn to temptation because we just didn't have to. And mm -hmm. um, and I think you know with something so recent, you just. I just don't think Declan and I could have operated that way. We, we would have only undertaken the story if we felt that the, there was sufficient narrative and story there to, to, to stick closely to the facts. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The Jaws analogy is a good one. I mean, also, you know, Spielberg didn't really show the shark for a long part of the movie, but um, here it's an invisible um, enemy. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, I can't not bring up the weird parallels with... COVID. Um, how's just what? What are your thoughts with this? This coming out now, when we're all we're all checking surfaces, and there's a lot of um, you know we, we can all relate to contact tracing now. <laughs> we can't uh, we can't believe the residences. When when we went to to Salisbury, we wanted to tell a story about a community, and our theme was city versus chaos, and and that's partly because Adam and I grew up in during the conflict in Northern Ireland and we, there was a lot of chaos and then the response to that was communities coming together and, and families being a kind of antidote to that. So I think that was a kind of sub-inspiration for, for telling the story in the way that we, we did. Um, but we said about it, we were dealing with a contaminant and an invisible threat and we had to learn all about a public health response and contact thing and, and lockdown. And so the series was finished and completely uh, locked off and, and done and COVID and Adam. But also the emotional themes of a community having to deal with, with chaos in its midst uh, and having to find strength and resilience. I mean, I guess, Adam, it's fair to say we, we kind of couldn't believe what was happening. And, and, and I don't mean that yeah. in a good way. We weren't, we weren't happy about it. Or yeah, no, that, I, that the, I, I think that's a, really good, that's a really good point. Like, we weren't sitting there thinking, oh, we're very fortunate that the world now understands what Tracy and everyone in Salisbury went through. But what we did think is, like, maybe, you know, now with the public kind of... I think the optics on heroism, for example, has shifted a lot during, you know, the COVID pandemic. And that's what we were trying to do a bit with Salisbury. It was to say, you know, these are heroes, these local people, these boots on the ground people who, 
you know, literally, you know, will go over the top for you, will lie down in traffic for you, even though they don't know you, to try and protect you. These are the people that yeah. are the glue in society, that are holding society together. And I think now, you know, through COVID, like uh, the world has, great, uh, has finally garnished a greater appreciation for frontline workers. So with that in mind, it is, it is amazing that we chose a public health official as the kind of lead in a BBC drama. And now it's people like that, that people are finally saying, you're the people that are keeping us, you know, that are keeping us are straight here at the moment. Um, so yeah, the parallels are crazy. We never thought it was fortunate, um, but it is frightening that, you know, we had never heard of contact tracing when we interviewed Tracy Daskovich. And then when the show goes out, it's lingo in everyone's lips. Everyone understands it. Con- I mean, that's crazy. How, how much the world has changed, right? I mean, you just can't plan for a thing like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think, it's, I think it is, just to kind of round up, I, I think it's important that the show goes out to the world right now because I think the thing that will surprise people a lot about Sol- the Salisbury Poisons is that it's a, it is an uplifting show in many ways. It's, it's about you know, how to deal with chaos together. As Declan said, the theme is community versus chaos. But in the face of something kind of crazy and unprecedented, we can either fall apart or we can work together. And I think this team of people in Salisbury showed that they, you know, what happens if you work well. When we pitched the show to the BBC, uh, the commissioner, whose name is Lucy Richards, she, she uh, said, oh, you want to make a show about ordinary heroes? And he kind of summed up very well what, exactly what we were doing. And, and that was it. Or, ordinary heroes is, is, is what it was about, really. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, ordinary heroism, exactly. And how did you know when to end it or how to end it, really? You know, Disney's still an active, um, well, never really stopped it. But, um, yeah, how did you know, okay, that's our ending? <laughs> I think we felt that, uh, there, for us anyway, there, there seemed to be a natural conclusion after Don Sergis's funeral and the emotional flight of that, so um, all of our characters suffered. Tr- Tracy Daskovich felt guilt. Um, she felt like she'd missed something, and it took her a long time to come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. Nick Bailey was suffering post-traumatic stress and, and still is to this day. And so we thought, well, we have Dawn's funeral, and then we have everyone suffering, but then we wanted the fight of the series to be not about suffering and fallout and consequence, but to be about resilience. And because that was the, that was the end point for us, all of these people had found a way to begin to deal with it through their, their families and their community connections. Mm-hmm. That is why this series ends as it does. It, uh, yeah, there's a lot of spring, but ultimately they find resilience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. You're breaking up a wee bit, Dick, but I think basically just to round up on that as well, you know, there is no ending for a story like this, you know, and I think that's the point, you know, we all, again, when we made documentaries, you often, you were often forced by exec, so you need to draw a line and say that's, actually the world just keeps going on and on. Um, it's really about what we learn. So I think, you know, at the end, you know, all of the people involved, all of our protagonists are still learning and are still dealing from what's happened to them. Uh, and that's where we leave them because that's where they still are in, in the world, you know, and, and will continue to be so. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious how the, how the two of you work together. How do, what's your process sort of um, sharing writing duties and how do, you, how do you riff off each other? So basically, um, we, we work together. We, we structure everything in the same room. We have, we have to be in a room for that. We stick yellow post-its up and cover a wall 
So we need a really big wall and an awful lot of post-its. And um, we write out every scene and every beat and every, and we, we move the pieces around until we're happy with them. And, and so that, that can happen anywhere. We did a lot of that in Salisbury in our hotel room where we would just clear a wall and, and put the entire series up on the wall. And it's a very, very uh, rewarding and fun thing to do. Uh, we, yeah, I guess we, we just learned it. it's it's very creatively fruitful, basically. Yeah, the, there's always there's a feeling there's always an energy that that, that that kind of swells when we're together working like that. And um, it started, you know, when we sort of seven years ago when we sat down in my apartment with Microsoft Word and wrote our first short film together. Mm-hmm. There was a connection then, two guys that are like work in the factual journalism world that kind of want to create and inspire ourselves in, in, in a new arena. And it was born then and it, and it just grows and grows because there is something we get to places that we wouldn't do by ourselves. And I think if you're working in a team with someone like that's what you should always be looking for. Someone who drags you to another place that you may not even envision a place that might not even be somewhere you want to go at times. But when you get there, you look around and think, actually, this is pretty great. So I think when you're working with somebody, the right person, that that's the sort of thing that happens. And Deck and I have found, you know, as he says, like the engine room for every project we do is that storyboarding session. And it always just, we leave, whether it's one day, two days, whether it's a week together, we leave that with a show, with an episode, with a show, with a new idea. So it just kind of works. And, um, it's, it's, and it's also great fun to work, not be working by yourself. It's great fun to work with one of your best mates. <laughs> Yeah, great. Yeah, because, um, you know, writing can be a lonely pursuit, I imagine. So, yeah, um, yeah. no, that's great. And um, so what else have you got on the boil? Is there anything you can else you can talk about? Is there much happening in a pandemic? Yeah. Funny, as writers, um, we've been very busy over lockdown because everyone's in development now. So they're all looking for ideas and they want ideas ready, they want the script ready to go for when they can shoot again so we, we've been pretty busy but but the next thing we're doing is actually directing a film a feature film called chasing agent free guard starring a british actor called james norton and we're hoping to shoot that in the spring of next year if the virus allows us to do it so um writing that project we're directing it because um ultimately adam and i are we're writers vectors we want to be able to do both um, and so yeah we're really really looking forward to that yeah, basically, like Deck and I directed uh, documentaries. I did some commercial directing. It was always kind of an aspiration of ours to write and direct in, in drama, but we, you know, we wanted to make sure we could write first before we get into the directing. But it's another true story. It's about a real life uh, con man who was prolific in the, from the mid '90s for ten years in swindling many different women out of their family fortunes, and uh, it's basically about gaslighting and you know, course of control. And it's a very kind of pertinent topic for today, I think. Um, and James Norton will play the lead, the, um, the con man. So yeah. so, yeah, so we're going off to a cottage in a couple of weeks in, in Ireland to do, our, to do our post-it notes again for a few days on that. <laughs> another post-it note session? Yeah, another post-it note session. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, I'd like to wrap things up by asking people what they've been watching. Have you been watching much in lockdown or have you been too busy making your movie or planning your movie? No, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I really... What, what have I watched recently? It's one of those questions. <laughs> My mind always goes blank. Um, I haven't been watching much TV. Um, I, I mean, a couple of days ago, I watched a, a really amazing uh, independent art house British film called Bait, uh, which won the kind of best BAFTA newcomer this year. 
just because it was you know, shot in 16 millimeter and the guy you know was a real like literally had the idea 20 years ago to make this and it's just that one of those films it's very different to the way Declan and I you know view the world creatively but you just look at that and think wow what an amazing commitment to make an amazing piece of work about a small part of the UK in, Cor- in Cornwall so I just watched that a couple of days ago and it was amazing but I haven't you know I- I've got a young child and the summer's always a bit manic so I haven't been committed to any new TV shows at the moment. Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> what about you, Declan? Yeah, I have children. I was watching a lot of Curious George and Postman Pat and so on. Um, basically, uh, I, I'm a kind of secret sci-fi. So, yeah, so there's a show on Apple TV called For All Mankind, uh, which is kind of alternative history about the, uh, the space race between Russia and America by Ronald D. Moore, who did Battlestar Galactica. So I got... I got addicted to that a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, I kind of, I guess like everybody, Ozark as well, a big fan of Ozark. So, uh, yeah, I'm binging quite a lot at the moment. Mm. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, look, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate your time. It's been great to talk to you. And congratulations on the show. I, I'm sure it'll do really well here. It's, yeah. Okay, thanks for your Bye. Have a great day. So that was Declan Lawn and Adam Patterson, the writers of The Salisbury Poisonings, which is coming to SBS on August 24th. So they're obviously in, in lockdown doing a lot of binge viewing right now. Yes, to which we can all relate. Um, well, that sounds like a good segue to what have you been watching? So, Ben, what have you been watching? Ah, well, I have been doing um, a fair bit of binging, to be fair, but there's a show that I wanted to chat about uh, it's been um, out on Netflix for a little bit now called Indian Matchmaking. Fiona, have you checked this out? Yes. Yeah, I've watched an episode. So um, I have to say uh, I have been hooked. I sort of uh, just put it on for want of uh, basically just a kind of aimless time filler. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I've got an episode to go now. Um, well, I'll, I'll set it up for people first. So um it does follow. It is made by a filmmaker, Smriti Mundra, for Netflix, um, and she had previously made a documentary called A Suitable Girl, and she um, followed that up by pitching this show to Netflix about a real-life matchmaker based in India but who actually does a lot of matchmaking um, for the Indian diaspora, so including in um, North America. So we sort of see across the show her um, take on particular clients, um, whether they be within India or within the US, and then offer them and their families, because their sort of families are often uh, players in these conversations as well, some options for them to choose from and some quite fussy, some are sort of more open to what's on offer and and perhaps sort of a little bit frustrated by their lack of finding a partner through maybe more conventional Western means, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've found this really interesting and I'm certainly, you know, not from within that culture and, you know, we can sort of maybe work our way onto that. But in some ways it dispels some of the stereotypes around arranged marriages because the the participants in this show, the clients, certainly have a strong say, you know, you know, ultimately it is up to them whether these relationships proceed or not. So it's certainly not the situation where 
a relationship is being forced on them by their parent. But at the same time, there's a lot of acknowledgement of the culture from which they're coming. Um, let's hear a bit from the show. Cheers. Cheers. It would be like a relaxing 10 days for you. What would you do for 10 days? Why did you put the word relaxing in front of it? Can you relax? Not for me. I will talk to you never. So fickle-minded and fussy. And I'm here to help them. In India, the marriages, they are between two families. So the parents guide their children. And that is the work of a matchmaker. Very nice person. Understand sense of humor. You know how I hate comedy. The clients, they want everything. Someone charming? Equal to my pay or higher. Adjustment is also important. You have to be attracted to the person and the person has to be good. I don't think that it's a lot to ask for. I'm really close to my mom. I wholeheartedly trust her judgment. If he doesn't finalize, me and my husband are going to finalize the girl for him. That is what I've decided. Matchmaking has become a tough job. But I'm trying my best. Here we are. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fee, what did you think? Well, yes, as I say, I've only really watched the first episode, but I am likewise hooked. I, I do need to uh, catch up on the rest. Um, it's a formula, like the, the way this story is, is told is a familiar formula um, if you see shows like Millionaire Matchmaker or something that's on, um, like Foxtel has a lot of these kind of reality shows, but where it, this one departs is it's, I don't know, there, there is more warmth to it in the way it's told, I think, um, and mm. it's trying, like you, like you say, like it's showing um, just a different side of the arranged marriage element um, that, that we would, that we are familiar with seeing. Um, I know it's come under fire a little bit for the way it deals with caste and, um, you know, there's some coded phrases with the way people speak to what, what they want in a partner and um, fair skin comes up a lot in in. Um, some throwaway lines like, oh, he's he's great, he's tall, he's fair. And, um, yeah, you just think, whoa, what? <laughs> so um, that that is kind of a through line that has been critiqued quite heavily but also held up as, well, it's there for critique because that's the reality of um, Indian society and the caste system is heavily in place. Um, so, yeah, I find it fascinating um, and very compulsive viewing. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's a new um, season of The Bachelor out on Australian TV and I haven't been inclined to check this one out at all. Mm. Maybe I will catch up there. I, I won't <laughs> rule that out. But this certainly is um, uh, sort of scratching that itch for the moment. And I, um, sure. I will sort of engage a bit more in some of that context around the show once it's wrapped up for me and, um, and I will be very interested to understand some of those critiques and I and I have also sort of seen uh you know a bit of as you say a defense of the the program in that it's not representing anything that doesn't exist in this sort of matchmaking culture Mm. so in some ways you know we we need to kind of acknowledge that but I do find the production model again of Netflix very interesting where you know this has been seen as a real way for them to target growing an audience in in India um and at the same time reach sort of diasporas sort of worldwide, which is something that Netflix can kind of do that very few other, you know, sort of producers of content are able to do. And mm. and it has the benefit of just sort of making Netflix's content in particular much more diverse than a lot of what we've seen, which has sort of been, you know, much more US-centric 
um, from other producers of content. So I find that fascinating. And and I just sort of do think, you know, where would I ever have seen a Bachelor style show, which was entirely made up of brown people? Yeah, right. There's a sort of a lot I've been getting out of it and kind of, I guess sort of ultimately it's just got me hooked on the level of wanting to see the people I like find someone. <laughs> <laughs> You're really rooting for them there. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And, and I mean, it all comes back like a lot of everything does when it comes to representation. I mean, it's, it's, if this is the only spotlight on a community or in a culture that you see, then you would have greater issues with it. But, you know, it's about having more around so that Indian matchmaking isn't the only story you see. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, the test in a way will be if Netflix are serious about engaging with India, what other Indian local content do they produce um, and how successful are they in making it engaging for a wider international audience? I, guess, mm. I suppose sort of that does feel like that's the business model that they're working towards um, and that will be you know, really what either sustains them or, or doesn't into the future. Yeah, totally. I mean, like you say, like they've got the reach. They've, they're in homes around the world, so there's this real focus on on telling more broader stories. Um, yeah, and we all get to benefit from it, especially with all being in our homes so much. <laughs> and Fee, apart from a lot of myth, or, or maybe there's even more <laughs> myth that you haven't um, told us about, what have you been watching? Mm. Yes, well, uh, yeah, I did go through my myth watch list. Um, there actually is another one I can uh, <laughs> mention if you can. Yeah, if you're go keen. on. Um, it's another doc, actually. Uh, this one is called Coded Bias. Um, and, yeah, this one's a great one to sink your teeth into. It's um, a documentary about literally the, the bias that is inherent within artificial intelligence and machine learning. So you think technology, um, you know, it should be a supposedly neutral world, just full of bits and bytes, <laughs> listen to me. Um, but, you know, that, that's actually layered with embedded racism and privilege um, because of the people who are doing the programming. There's a great doc broadly about machine learning called Machine that you can watch at SBS On Demand. But this doc, Coded Bias, drills more deeper into this issue of uh yeah, the racism and sexism um, and all the isms that are built into this world of artificial intelligence because basically technology is so full of men and white men that their programs and systems um, replicate <laughs> so they kind of copy the, the people who are building the programs. The starting point, it takes a perspective of a computer scientist at MIT, Joy Bulamwini, who uh, she shares the experience of having built basically an app. It's called an Aspire Mirror and it in a way um, replicates someone's face, someone's face onto yours. Sort of just think like a Snapchat filter but a bit more detailed but um, where it projects a face onto yours for kind of an empowering aspirational moment. Um, someone like Serena Williams mm. or like a lion, something like that, yeah, which sounds great. <laughs> but um, she found she's a black woman and the camera didn't recognise her face and it actually mm. took, this is ridiculous, but it took putting a white mask, like literally a blank white mask on her face for oh the camera God. to recognise her, right? And she built the thing. So, um, yeah, it comes from that ridiculous starting point to think, well, that's not, <laughs> how can that be? And then we proceed to find out how how that can be. Um, yeah, and lots <laughs> of real-world examples and yet so it's it's a good one. <laughs> so that one is called Coded Bias and I'm sure that one will do the rounds and who knows, may even make it to 
SPS one day. But um, yeah, Coded Bias, it's a very good one. And that is also playing at MIF. Well, good to know that technology is really leading us to have all of the isms just reinforced and uh, that dystopia that television presents the future as is actually where we're headed. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) But that sounds as depressing as all hell, but um, in the best way it introduces a number of people who are leading the way to try and overturn (laughs) these uh, racist and ismist um, practices and systems. And, you know, they're all women that, as they're shown in this doc, and um, Mm. it's, yeah, really very inspiring and and uplifting. So, you know, it's depressing as all hell, but then it ends on a high with hopes that things might, these people working for change. Well, that's left me feeling a bit better about (laughs) the world. Oh, good. So now it's time to turn our attention to SBS On Demand and uh, introduce a couple of personal recommendations for things you can watch. Uh, Ben, what do you suggest this week? Well, I'm going to pull out uh, a little mini-series from 2017 that's um, sitting on SBS On Demand and it is written by John Ridley, the American writer perhaps best known for 12 Years a Slave, but you know, he's been uh, sort of working in the US TV and film industry for a, a long time. Um, he uh, created American Crime to be distinguished from American Crime Story, different series, but um, but acclaimed none, nonetheless. And then he created this series, Gorilla, for UK television. So he's sort of brought the US sensibility to the UK in some ways. And it's Interesting in that it's a historic drama set in the 70s in a period of, you know, rapid social change with race at the forefront. And we have these characters played by Frida Pinto. Um, Idris Elba is a sort of wise voice of reason here, Babu Sisse. And they are basically involved in radical politics, um, sort of think... Um, similar to Black Panther movement, kind of um, pushing to to the point of carrying out what could be described as terrorist actions in order to drive political change. I think one thing that makes it interesting is that it has such a feeling of authenticity. For me, anyway, it it drove me to do what I think a lot of television uh, based on real life does for me, which is uh, lead me to Wikipedia um, and to check out the real events on which um, these stories were based. And then, uh, to my surprise, actually, this is a purely fictional story. So in yeah. some ways I think that that's worth knowing going in. And and that probably allows the story to do some things. It can kind of, you know, just sort of create a scenario not not bound on the reality of circumstances. And, and maybe that helps reveal some truths about that period in history. But I think at the same time, I guess it sort of left me feeling slightly frustrated because I feel like the the history of that period and the politics of that period are so rich. I don't know that we need to sort of make up groups that didn't exist and stories that didn't exist. Mm. Um, but I, I, I guess sort of it's sort of that... Uh, tension in a way, I guess, between fictional and factual storytelling and um, and which one's the right form for getting a particular message across. 
Um, so that's Gorilla, and all episodes are out on SBS On Demand now. Hmm. Well, great. Uh, Fee, uh, what OD pick do you have for us? All right. Well, uh, my one is a movie, and I did talk about this when it was at the cinema's couple of years ago now, but um, it's Burning. And this is a film from South Korea by uh, Lee Chang-dong. And, yeah, I can't recommend this highly enough. I love it. And it's a really gripping kind of a noir movie and it's it's mysterious and from the outset, this is not a criticism, but it, it probably helps to know to set it up. But, um, like, it's quite a long movie. It's about two and a half hours, I think. And it, it's quite slow in its pacing, but absolutely pays off and I think it, it needs the time to sort of build this mystery around these strange characters. So it's uh, kind of a toxic triangle and it's our, our hero here is uh, quite a like a poor and a shy and a little bit slow guy um, called Jong Su who he meets up with a girl he went to school with, um, Haimi, who she's completely out of his league and um, both of them know it, but um, they sort of strike up a friendship and a quasi-relationship sort of, but, uh, yeah, there's no doubting whether <laughs> she holds holds the cards in that, um, in that friendship. But she heads off on a holiday and he is enlisted to feed her cat while she's away and to pick her up from the airport when she's back, which he does, and when she gets back um, she's hooked up with a new guy and um, he's hot and rich and jong Su is sort of on the outer, but um, this other guy, Ben, he um, doesn't see jong Su as any kind of a threat, so there's this weird triangle going on with these three now. And then something happens and I'll sort of not, try not spoil it too much, but, um, yeah, there's, then the dynamic shifts in this relationship quite dramatically. So um, I don't know if I'm building up the mystique enough for you there, but... Uh, it's a really poetic kind of a telling of a story that really gets at class and male insecurity as well, sort of this this richer kind of a slacker. Like he's charming, this, this other guy is charming and he gets away with a whole lot of shit because he's hot and charming and rich, whereas uh, jong Su has had to work every single day of his life. And the performances are really fantastic and they really build character. It's quite gripping, I find. And it had a cinema run, but, yeah, I don't think enough people saw it, so... I want to give a bit of a shout to Burning. I think it's very much worth the time. Great. Well, viewing plans are made. Mm-hmm. And I think that brings us to the end of the show for another week. I think so. Oh, uh, make sure you listen to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, give us a lot of stars, leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show. And you can let us know what you thought of the movies and TV shows we discussed on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. And I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. And I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. And the playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.